This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. We're in Romans chapter 3. I'm going through verse 8 this morning. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteousness, unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. The word of the Lord. Morning, church. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word this morning, we want to be faithful students of it. I want to be faithful to proclaim that which you have written in it. And so I pray that you would both help me as the preacher and help those in the congregation as students of it place ourselves under its authority. It is the thing that you have given us to grow us and change us through the power of your spirit moving and working. And that is our prayer this morning, that you would grow us and change us through the power of your word. So help us to be faithful listeners. Help, us, help me to be a faithful proclaimer of your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I had a, a seminary professor named Dr. Soto. And uh, Dr. Soto uh, had a way of responding to students' questions in a very, we'll say, thorough uh, pointed way, uh, as people would ask what you might say might be dumb questions from time to time. Uh, I don't necessarily hold to the idea that there are no such thing as dumb questions. Sometimes questions are not the smartest thing that you could ask. And uh, Dr. Soto would kind of obliterate people from the scriptures with answers uh, because he clearly knew the word very, very well, and he was not afraid to wield it and use it in that way. Um, one specific story I remember uh, will protect the, 
the name of the, the party to let him remain guiltless in our presence, but one of my uh, colleagues uh, wrote a paper on divorce and remarriage, of which Dr. Soto was presently writing a book about. Um, and if there, there are four traditional views of divorce and remarriage. If you have the, the left view over here and the right view and two in the middle, they were on polar opposites of the spectrum, and he presented his paper and was just destroyed in a way that honestly made us all feel a little uncomfortable. Not that it was harsh, it was just very pointed. Here's the word, here's what's happening. Uh, and it was like, wow, Dr. Soto really knows the word really, really well. He can just go to all of these things. And I, I do believe that's true. He knows the scriptures very well, but he'd also been teaching in seminary for over 20 years. And so after time, you kind of build up the questions that people are going to ask, right? So the, this student's probably going to ask this, and, and you generate responses to those questions over time. So did he know the word? Well, yes, but he had also been able to really refine those specific questions that he would get asked on a regular basis. So this is kind of what's happening in the book of Romans as we get here. So at this point in Paul's ministry, he's been preaching for about 20 years or a little over 20 years, and he's been going to synagogue after synagogue after synagogue and preaching to the Jews. And so what has happened in that time? He's heard the objections that people are going to give him to what he's teaching, to, to the gospel that he is presenting. He's heard those objections, and so now he is really anticipating some of those objections here for us in these eight verses. It's why he goes off into these things and knows what they might be thinking and saying because he's been doing the work. As we studied Acts, so what seems like quite a while ago at this point, he was going to the Jewish synagogues over and over and over to preach to the Jews. So, the question for us this morning from the text is, what does Paul want us to know about God through all of these questions? What does he want us to know? And I think it's this. I think he wants us to know that I must believe God is faithful. I must believe God is faithful. So we pick up at the beginning of chapter 3 because we ended in at the end of verse or chapter 2 last week. And after Paul's last argument that we walked through together last week, this section is really kind of interesting. It seems like it kind of actually comes out of nowhere. In fact, I would have anticipated it to be a whole other thing, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, in fact, Doug Moo, who is maybe uh, one of the leading scholars or is one of the leading scholars on the book of Romans on the face of planet Earth, uh, said that five of the eight verses we're going to look at this morning are arguably the five hardest verses to interpret in all of Scripture, or in all of Romans at least. So thanks for going on vacation, Jamie. Appreciate that. Uh, but I think there are some important truths for us to understand here. And I don't want us to get scared by an initial reading where we go, what in the world does that mean? Because that's kind of how I was the first time I read through it this week as I was getting ready to study. Like, what exactly is he getting at? Uh, I, I want to look at 2 Peter quickly. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, 
preach, Peter, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Peter gives us both a a comfort and a caution, right? The comfort is, yeah, some things that Paul writes are hard to understand. Peter thought that, and he had walked the face of planet Earth with Jesus himself. So wrestling through this text, it's a good thing. It's not foreign. It's what we should be doing. But the caution is, it's easy to get carried away with the error of lawless people. It's easy to be tossed to and fro by the winds of doctrine, So we need to dig in. Even when it's hard, even when it seems challenging to understand, we need to study hard. We need to press in. We need to seek to apply this text to our lives as we see what Paul had in mind for his original readers, because there's something at stake here, church. And it has major implications, I believe, as I've studied this text for how you live day in and day out. I must believe that God is faithful. I must believe that God is faithful. So let's look at four truths about God's faithfulness that we must believe from this text. Four truths about God's faithfulness I must believe. The first is this. My God is faithful to do what he says. My God is faithful to do what he says. Let your eyes fall back on verse one of chapter three. Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So as we read these first two verses, I have to admit to you that after we went through 25 through 29, it's probably not what we should expect him to say. He's just kind of devalued circumcision and kind of devalued the nation of Israel in in one sense, not entirely, but in one sense. And so I would actually have expected Paul to say something more like, there is no value. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're circumcised. It's all about how you live. If I'm following his line of thinking, his flow of thought, that's, that's what I might have anticipated him to say. But that's not what he says. What does he say? What, what value is there? Look at the beginning of verse 2. Much in every way. What? He says there's actually lots of value. Well, how, how does this fit with what Paul was just unpacking in verses 25 through 29 about circumcision and it really being more about your outward obedience than whether you were circumcised or not circumcised? Well, I think what we really need to consider actually is what would it mean if he did say what we could kind of expect it? What would it mean if he said there is no value? If Paul answered that way, he would essentially blow up the entirety of the Old Testament with one little phrase. The nation of Israel is God's chosen people. They have a special place as the people of God. That's clear Old Testament teaching. Colin Cruz said this, God did choose the Jews out of all mankind and did bestow special privileges upon them. To reduce them, therefore, to the level of other nations is either to accuse the Old Testament of falsehood or to accuse God of failure to carry out his plans. God hasn't failed to carry out his plans with Israel. 
He has kept his promises to them. So, yes, Israel still has value to God. The Jews are still valuable to God. Well, why? Let's, let's continue in Paul's argument and look. Paul says this. He says, to begin with. Okay, so I got to pause for a second. For those of you who are OCD, you're like, yes, there's a list coming of the various things that are there. Um, the, the reality is um, he only gives us one today, and he doesn't pick up the list again until chapter 9. Verses four and five, okay? So you got a couple of weeks of preaching in between filling out the list of where he's gonna fill that out. So just make sure you note that, those of you who are OCD like I am. But so let's look at the one reason that he does give. What's the one reason that he does give? They were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Why is that significant? Well, honestly, one of the things this season of Christmas shows is many of those prophecies, many of those oracles being fulfilled as Jesus took on human flesh and was born at the time he was born, in the way that he was born. God is fulfilling promises to Israel. He has given them his word. He will eventually fulfill every single promise he has ever made. The point Paul is making is huge. God is faithful to do what he says he will do. The gospel he is preaching, it doesn't minimize that. It's not in opposition to that. It's not fighting against that. No, actually it amplifies it. So this first objection that the Old Testament doesn't matter because of Paul's gospel is blatantly false. No, the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel amplify the gospel. It brings it clarity. They magnify all that God has done through Jesus. So did you ever do the thing when you have a magnifying glass as a kid and you like find an ant and then you like try to get the sun and you like try to burn the ant? Brandon logs in is very energetically <laughs> agreeing with that. We might need to talk about that later, but that's okay. <laughs> What, what happens when you shine the light of the sun through the magnifying glass, it concentrates the sun's light to a specific area. We could say it amplifies the sun's effects in that one specific area. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about seeing scripture through the lens of what God has done through the nation of Israel. When we see it through the lens of the Old Testament, When we view God's plan through the magnifying glass of Israel, it shows his power in the gospel even greater. It amplifies the gospel. It's why the Old Testament is so significant to our theology. We can't just start in the New Testament and forget all that other stuff. It makes much of Jesus. makes much of the gospel. Okay, so so why do you care? Why Why do we care? Well, it's simple. If God is faithful to do what he says he will do with the nation of Israel, don't you think that impacts you? If God has done what he said he would do then, he will be faithful to do what he says he will do now. If I know and believe that God has been faithful to his word, then I can know and believe that he will be faithful to his word. 
So I can believe that when he promises he is working all things for my good, Romans 8, he is, even though my life may seem different than I want. Even though circumstances might not be how I'd like them to be, he is faithful, he has shown it. I can believe that he will be faithful to complete the good work in me that he has started, Philippians 1. Even when I'm wrestling and struggling with sin, even when people's sin around me is impacting me, when the world around me seems to be falling apart, he will complete the good work. He will keep his word. He's faithful. He's shown it. I could take you to promise after promise after promise and walk you through that same line of thinking, but it's foundational for us to understand that God has interacted with Israel in a specific way. Why? Because it demonstrates his faithfulness as a God. It demonstrates who he is and what he will do, and that when he says he will do something, he will in fact do it. I must believe God is faithful to do what he says. I must believe God is faithful to do what he says. Four truths about God's faithfulness I must believe. My God is faithful to do what he says. My God is faithful even in my failure. My God is faithful even in my failure. Let your eyes fall back on verse three of Romans three. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But what if the Jews were unfaithful? What if they fail? Does that mean that God failed? That's his question. If, if they failed, does that mean God failed? Do, do my failures nullify God's faithfulness? The, the word nullify here means to cause something to lose its power or effectiveness, to invalidate or make it powerless. What's Paul's response? Beginning of verse four. By no means. Absolutely not. May it never be. In fact, look what he says. I'll summarize it this way. If everyone on earth were a liar, and we are, God will still be true. If everyone else fails, God will not fail. God will be true to every word he has said, regardless of if we are faithful or not. And then he quotes scripture here. It's the, the end of verse four, if you look at it, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. It's a quotation from Psalm 51. I want you to flip over there. You need to see this. Psalm 51, as you read, start reading Psalm 51, look at just the heading portion, not the create in me a clean heart, oh God, the next part. 
What's it say? It's a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is a Psalm of David after his sin with Bathsheba. This was David writing after a massive failure, after massive sin struggle. So look at verse one. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then verse four, where the quote actually comes from, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. David says against you and you only have I sinned. I have done evil and you would be blameless in judging me for the evil that I have done. David, an adulterer, a murderer, he knew his sin, he knew his failure, and he was telling God, you would be right to judge me. It's Paul's point. They are unfaithful. They are failures. They are sinners. But their sin does not change God's faithfulness. David's sin didn't change God's faithfulness. Jesus was in the line of David. Did that stop because David sinned and was a massive failure? No. Did God not bring salvation to the world through the Messiah because of David? Absolutely not. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. God would be just to condemn our sin. He would be just to punish our sin, to pour out his wrath on our sin. But instead, he offers a free gift, the gift of Jesus, because he said he would. We can go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and see the promise that he would one day send one to crush the head of the serpent and promise after promise after promise to the nation of, of Israel, to his people, that he was going to make this right, that he was going to put this back together. And they failed over and over and over and over. And we fail over and over and over. And God is still faithful to do what he says he would do. Church, God's faithfulness even when Israel was unfaithful, gives us the ultimate hope that we can have. It gives us the hope of our sins forgiven. It gives us the hope of eternity with Jesus. It gives us the hope that when we are unfaithful, he will still be faithful. I must believe God's faithful. Even in my failure. Church, it's going to change everything for you. Four truths about God's faithfulness I must believe. My God is faithful to do what he says, even in my failures. My God is faithful to show his righteousness. My God is faithful to show his righteousness. Flip back over to Romans chapter 3. 
Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? And all God's people said, what? This is where it gets a little challenging to see what in the world is going on in Paul's line of thinking. Paul's making an argument in these four verses that builds on itself. I'm going to attempt to show you that, show you the flow of his argument first. There are three points to it, okay? There are three points to his flow of argument. The first point is this. God can't condemn people if their condemnation glorifies his righteousness. God can't condemn people if their condemnation glorifies his righteousness. That's in verse 5 and 6. I'll read it again. But if our unrighteousness, so when we sin, serves to show that God is righteous, the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So when we are unrighteous, when we sin, it shows the righteousness of God. We're good there so far. Does it, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? What? This is where we start to get off. I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? So the idea here is that God can't condemn people because they sin, because it glorifies his righteousness. That's what they're saying. John Piper said it this way. They, the Jewish objectors, say if our sin, like David's sin, magnifies God's righteousness when he judges us, then really we are not the instruments of sin. We're the instruments of God's glory to magnify his righteousness. So, he would be unrighteous to condemn us. He would be condemning us for the very thing that magnifies the glory of his righteousness in judgment. And let me tell you, church, this is how you talk when you've lost your mind. <laughs> this is not what's reality, and this is the, the parentheses you have. I speak in a human way. This is almost Paul being sarcastic or almost embarrassed he's even saying it out loud. He's like, yeah, this is what they say, but this is, this is crazy talk. They, they say God can't condemn people if their condemnation glorifies his righteousness, okay? So that, that's the first part of his argument. That's point number one. Now, point number two is in verse seven. Let's read it. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So they think Paul is sinning with his gospel, with the gospel he is preaching, and they want him to be condemned. We saw that all through the book of Acts. They're trying to condemn Paul over and over and over, even though that exact approach towards Paul contradicts the very thing that they're saying in verses 5 and 6, because Paul, in their mind, is sinning, and so they wouldn't be able to condemn him because it would glorify God's righteousness. So Paul isn't actually saying he's lying. He's saying they're accusing him of lying, okay? 
So the idea of the second point is they're being inconsistent with their own argument. They're being inconsistent with their own words. Okay, now point three. Verse eight, let's read it. And why not do evil that good may come? We'll just stop there. And why not do evil that good may come? Here's his point. If you follow your own logic, right living doesn't matter which has been your problem with the gospel of grace that I have been preaching all along as you've been accusing me of saying how we live doesn't matter, which, oh, by the way, is why I wrote all of chapter two so that you would understand the gospel does motivate our obedience. It's what we've been talking about week after week. Paul is saying God is going to show his righteousness. That is true. He is going to glorify himself but he's going to glorify all of himself. They're pigeonholing God. They're saying he can only glorify one side at a time if we think of wrath and grace being opposite sides. Paul's saying, no, no, no. God can glorify his grace. He can glorify his wrath. This gospel of grace by faith alone that I'm preaching to you doesn't mean that God's still not gonna judge that God won't still pour out his wrath on sin. No, it just means that both parts of God are going to be equally glorified. This is the beauty of the gospel. God gets glory for all of himself, which is what he's after and what he wants. But this is the twisted logic that Paul has been hearing in the synagogues. And as you unpack it, it really holds no water and is very inconsistent in how they're arguing it. So about a month ago in the offices, we had this debate. It was a friendly debate. Is chili soup or is chili its own category? So Ethan, God love him, he, he, he came in hot saying, chili is 1,000% soup. And if you know, if you know Ethan, it's either 1,000% or it's zero. There's, no, there's nothing in the middle. But, but here's the problem. As we began to debate, he began to make my point, which was that chili's not soup. It's its own category. We can talk about that later. But he actually began to argue both sides of the argument and became horrifically inconsistent. Ethan may have learned his debate skills from these Jews Paul is addressing because this is basically what's happening here. They're trying to poke holes in Paul's gospel by not even arguing what is based on reality. Their points are inconsistent because they determined where they wanted to end without understanding the situation all the way through. They determined where they wanted to end without fully understanding the situation. It's what Ethan did. You can ask him. He admitted to me, I just wanted to debate. So I just chose a side and just went for it. And then halfway through, I realized I was wrong. So I just started arguing your point. But Paul's gospel, our gospel, is salvation by grace through faith. And that will motivate us to want to honor and obey God. Paul's point to them is this. God is just to show his righteousness. He is just to show his righteousness. God will be faithful to redeem sinners who put their faith in Jesus. And he will be faithful to condemn sinners who do not put their faith in Jesus. God will display his righteousness 
all of it. Church, the gospel is hope to those who are in Christ. The greatest hope that we have. But it's condemnation to those who are not. This is the dance. We must believe that God is faithful to show his righteousness. Four truths about God's faithfulness I must believe. My God is faithful to do what he says, even in my failure, to show his righteousness. And the last is this, my God is faithful to reveal himself. My God is faithful to reveal himself. You might say, okay, well, we just got all the way through verse eight. So where in the world are you getting that point? It seems a little bit out of left field. And in one sense, you'd be kind of correct, but here's why it's here. What ultimately caused Paul to have to address all of these concerns in the text? or with the Jews in the synagogues as he was preaching the gospel. These Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, right? They had the word, they had the law. They should have seen the continuity between the message of the gospel that Paul was preaching and the Old Testament. They were entrusted with the word, but they mishandled it. They believed, they knew what it said, but they didn't. They had an interpretation that caused them to live a certain way and they were wrong because there is no disconnect between Paul's gospel, our gospel, and the Old Testament. They perfectly work together, but they missed it. They thought that they knew God, but ultimately they were more tied into their cultural understanding of scripture than they were to scripture itself. They thought they knew God, but they were more concerned with protecting their way of life. They thought they knew God, but they were more concerned with not having their way of thinking challenged. And church, we all have this potential danger. We all have the ability to hear what we want to hear, to read what we want to read, and mishandle the word of truth. All of us, each and every single one of us, myself included in that. Look, I approach the study of God's word with a seriousness that knows this is true every time I step into this pulpit. Every time I approach the word, I try to approach it with a seriousness, understanding that I know I can read it for what I want it to be and not what it actually is. And church, that's not just a problem for preachers. It's a problem for you. 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We have to seek to understand the word in its original context. Our job is to look for what it means, not just what it means to me. We say that a lot, right? Like, oh, what's this verse mean to you? I don't care really what it means to you. Love you. What I care is, what did Paul mean when he wrote it to them? Now we can talk about how that applies to you. That's a different conversation. But it means one thing. And it's what Paul meant it to mean when he wrote it to the Romans. 
Our job is to discover what the author meant when he wrote it. It's what we call authorial intent. This is how language works, by the way. You want this to be true of language across the board. When you have an argument with your spouse, trust me, you want to be able to say, no, 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 that's not what I meant, right? I want to mean what I meant when I said it. That's how language works. If not, we get into crazy town and everything breaks down because everybody just tells me what I meant, but I'm like, "Ah, that's not what I meant at all. What the words meant from the author to the original hearers is what we have to go after. And I'm here to tell you it takes a lot of work. It takes doing hard Bible study. But our goal has to be to rightly divide, rightly understand God's word. Because God has given us his word. Why? To reveal himself to us. My understanding of God is at stake who he is, how he interacts with the world. God has given us his word as a guide to how we can live within the way that he has designed the world to work. Because he is the author, the creator. He has intimately designed it to work in a specific way. And he has given us a book that will help us as we seek to say, this is how life is gonna go best for you. For his glory. These Jews were living wrongly because they believed wrongly. That's why Paul's writing them at all. Our theology, what we believe about God, fuels the way that we live. And at this point, most of you who are at Redemption Bible Church are here because of that very truth. And you're saying, amen, amen, preach it, Pastor Adam. We've got to handle the word well. But then too often when it comes to actually handling the word rightly in our own lives, we misapply it. To illustrate that, let me take a common struggle for people. Handling conflict. About half of you just twitched because I said those words. We don't like conflict. We hate dealing with conflict. Conflict. We want to run from it at all costs. We could offend or, or hurt someone in conflict. So what do we do? Do we rightly divide the word of truth and actually pl- apply it to how we handle conflict? Or do we run? Because God's word has a lot to say about how we should handle conflict. Right? If we were to go to Matthew 18, it says, if your brother sins against you, what should you do? You should go to your brother. We could also go to Matthew 5, and it says, if you know that you sinned against your brother, then what should you do? You should go to your brother. So if I sin, I go to my brother. And if he sins, I go to my brother. So if that's true, then I just have to go to my brother anytime I know that there's sin. Right? Is that what we do? Or do we know these things to be true, but we don't actually apply them because of part of rightly dividing the word of truth is actually applying things like don't be hearers of the word only, but doers. Church, I I gotta tell you, in the, the situation of conflict, as 
people, we just aren't good at this. And look, I'm, I'm not sitting up here because there's some situation that popped up and I'm preaching at someone this morning. This is 13 years of pastoral experience where I can say one of the things I deal with on the most regular basis is people unwilling to deal with conflict. They'd much rather sweep it under the rug, ignore it, run from it, minimize it, and then it grows and it grows and it grows and it becomes a thing that it never was instead of just actually doing the biblical thing and going to your brother. And why? Because ultimately, we fundamentally disbelieve what God has said is true. We don't trust him. We don't trust God's word. Because I believe if I do what God has said, it's gonna be worse. And church, if we do what God has said, it will never be worse. It may not be comfortable, but it won't be worse, it will be better. So we don't really trust God's word. We don't really apply God's word. The word is minimized, the word is trivialized. And this was the struggle of the Jews that Paul was addressing. They didn't want the word to challenge their thinking. They wanted to support what they thought, how they felt, the comfort of a way of life. And look, it can be dealing with conflict. It can be how you interact with your spouse, your kids, your neighbor, the world around you. We could take a thousand illustrations of things that we commonly know but don't actually live out. And fundamentally, we have to rightly divide the word of truth, which means knowing and doing. It means actually applying it to our lives and living it out. Sure, I have to do the hard work to seek to do what it says, but then what do I do with it from there? Do I just fill up my head? No. I have to actually exercise faith. I have to actually exercise trust in the way that I live it out because the core issue, church, is do I really believe what God has said? Do I actually trust God? We have to believe he's faithful. A hard text like this might on the surface seem like, what am I really gonna get out of this? But as we look back and see that God was faithful to Israel, he's been faithful to do what he says he will do. I can rest and know that he is going to be faithful to do the other things that he has promised to me that I can grab. God is faithful. Belief in the faithfulness of God will change everything for you. You've got to know it. You have to live in it. You have to rest in knowing that your God is faithful. It's who he is. It's who he will always be. We have to believe, church. I must believe God is faithful. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And I'm so grateful that you are a God who has demonstrated yourself to be faithful. You have demonstrated 
that you are interacting with the world in a consistent way over and over and over because you are who you say you are. You will do what you say you will do. And that has huge implications for how I live, for how I trust. God, I pray your faithfulness is not just something I know, but I pray it connects to my heart and it's something that I live from, that it, I have my affections stirred towards you because you are a faithful God. I can trust you, I can rest in you, I can see your goodness and your faithfulness regardless of what plans I see, what I think is happening. Remind our hearts. Help us drag our hearts in the hard moments to remembering you are a God who will do what you say you will do. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray.